The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 1st, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. You know that Ben Carson doing very well in the polls. Just trailing Trump in Iowa, but within the margin of error. I've been watching Mr. Carson, Dr. Carson's favorable ratings. I swear to God, I've been watching his favorable ratings. And the Wall Street Journal also has been asking in its polls, well, who would you consider voting for? And he's always done, even when it was way back in the polls, Carson has always done well among Republicans when asked them, well, would you consider voting for him? And they say, yeah, I'd consider it. Now, I want to be honest with you guys. You know what I thought that was? I thought that was all the Republicans saying, yeah, I'd consider the black guy, you know, sort of, uh, I'd consider having some of my best friends be black people, but it turns out I was the racist. I'm the real racist because they really liked Ben Carson the whole time. Or maybe I'm totally wrong and that's exactly what's going on. Anyway, it does seem that voters have taken to Ben Carson. He's calm. He's learned. He doesn't rule out drone strikes carried out by the military in America, but he won't necessarily rule them in. That's practically Solomonic. And when he's in front of a crowd, and he often gets in front of crowds in Iowa, he offers hay rides, he offers free cranial biopsies or something like that. He's doing these Ben Carson family festivals. People like his speeches. And here's where my critique comes in. The speeches are ambitious, but I don't think Ben Carson is quite nailing it. Here, let's listen. You know, this arena tomorrow It's going to be a completely different setup, some concert, something like that. The stage will be gone. After that night, the stage was gone, but the effect that it had on people remained. Wait, no, no, no. Different declared presidential candidate, different election. He's polling lower. Here now is Ben Carson. This was a couple weeks ago at the Iowa State Fair. I give him a nod for the ambition, the execution, however, not quite up to snuff. So he just asked the crowd to remember their birthday, and then he explained what the brain had to do to retrieve the answer to that. First of all, the sound waves had to leave my lips, travel through the air, enter your external auditory meatus, travel down to the tympanic membrane, set up a vibratory force, which traveled across the oscillus of the middle ear to the oval and round window, set up a vibratory force in the end of limb, which mechanically distorted the microcilia, converting mechanical energy to electrical energy, which traveled across the cochlear nerve to the cochlear nucleus at the pontomedullary junction, from there to the superior olivary nucleus, ascending bilaterally at the brainstem to the Lateraliscus and the inferior collectors to the uh, on and on and it goes. But but <laughs> see how it petered out at the end there. It was almost there. If he could stick the landing, that is exactly the kind of party trick that earns a guy a spot in the Oval Office. I mean, not since Taft burped the alphabet backwards have we encountered this sort of dispositively qualifying recitation. Ben Carson just laid it on a bunch of Iowans. Almost there, doctor. Go for it. In the spiel, I will tell you about an infamous piece of legislation that could sink some presidential ambitions, yet at the same time, save tens of thousands of lives. But first, share the warmth. It's the lovely, the charming, the insightful, and the humane Bobcat Goldthwait. I am not kidding. 
When you're running a small business, time is your most valuable asset. Yes, it is. So why waste it by making trips to the post office? You can bring the whole post office, nay, the relevant parts of the post office, so not the lady cracking her gum who's not happy to help customers. But the other good stuff, like the stamps and the meters, you can bring it right to you with stamps.com. Go ahead, you've got to work smart. Do it with stamps.com. All you need is your computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. It's on demand, ready when you need it. Yeah, you try that demanding tone with some of those people who work in the post office. Look, many lovely, lovely people. But, you know, I'm just saying tone, tone, toner in your printer, cartridge, because you're printing it yourself from your own computer and your own desk. And you could put it, the postage you print on any letter or package, and you hand that right to your mail carrier. And he knows about the lady in the post office who's cracking her gum. He's not happy with it either. He probably envies you. And he envies stamps.com. It's so convenient and easy to use. Use the promo code the gist for a special offer. It's a four-week trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com today. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. Barry Crimmins is one of the most important comedians you may not have ever heard of. He was vital to the establishment of a thriving comedy scene in Boston. His club, also a restaurant, The Ding Ho, broke so many comics. And he was also among the most aggressively, unapologetically political comics ever. Maybe he was so political that it stopped him from achieving mainstream success. Or maybe it's that he was so important to the logistics of Boston comedy that he never became the face of it. Then there's Bobcat Goldthwait. You know Bobcat, he's crazy, unhinged, but he shows himself over and over again to be artistic. And his new documentary about Barry Crimmins called Call Me Lucky reinforces my thesis. My thesis is just expressed a sentence ago. Hey, Bobcat. Hey. Yeah, I'm an auteur, right? <laughs> I'm very uncomfortable with this whole thing of being suddenly taken serious. It's very weird. It is very strange. Well, I think that if there's ever a person you don't want to be comfortable, it's you. You thrive being <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, or at least making other people that way. But yeah, that that is my wheelhouse. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, the, the new movies call me lucky, and it is it is somewhat about Barry and the Ding Ho and the comedy scene and the comics that he nurtured that came out of there, folks like Paula Poundstone and Stephen Wright and myself and Kevin Meany and a whole bunch of others. But the movie is the telling of Barry's story about him dealing with his child abuse as an adult. He was dealing with it. You know, Barry was raped when he was four by a, a neighbor over a period of time. And as an adult, once he disclosed, he, he was looking for other survivors and he found and this is the early 90s he, he was looking for other people who had similar stories and then he found people who were exchanging child pornography at AOL AOL didn't do anything when he complained but the police couldn't really do much so he gathered all this evidence against AOL and shamed them on the floor of the Senate my name is Barry Crimmins I'm a writer and a children's rights and safety advocate residing in Lakewood Ohio I'm also an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse I go into this hearing with my suit and my Jerry Garcia tie on, and I look like a you know a marijuana grower at his arraignment. 
AOL constantly has rooms entitled family fun, nudist families, incest is best, have hot stepdaughter, and so on. In these rooms, child pornography is traded and incest is discussed and celebrated. Many of the photos that are exchanged are purportedly of people's own children. When I found out about the story, I, I just felt like a Frank Capra story, and that was really why I wanted to make the movie. So when did, did you find out when he was in the news, or he, had he talked to you or any of the other comedians you knew about his past beforehand? He had told me, but when he actually went on stage at Stitches during a benefit and disclosed on stage, uh, I had no idea he was going to do that. No one did. I think uh, the comedian that had to follow him wasn't so happy. I, yeah, I mean, it was funny because the comedian was like, I want to close. And Barry's like, you're not going to want to go on after me. <laughs> the fucking shit, or I don't got to believe the fucking shit, or whatever the fuck it is, leave me the fuck alone. I got tortured enough as a child dealing with the fucking Catholic Church, and I don't want to sign off on your fucking shit or talk about it anymore! I just wrote that. You know, I saw Barry as this guy who was just filled with all this anger and rage, and then eventually through his own recovery and working with other people, his rage changed and it wasn't just aimed at himself and, and the world. It became targets that that he deemed worthy of his wrath and, and his forgiveness. I mean, that's part of the reason why I made the movie was, you know, uh, I was talking to Barry and, and he told me that the guy that had, had done this to him, that raped him when he was a boy, had had died in prison a month ago, and he was very, he was very sad. And I said, "Well, why? Because you, you didn't get to confront him and have some closure." And he said, "No, that that guy died alone." And uh, when he said that, I was just like, I heard it, and I was just so blown away. And I thought, I'm gonna win awards. <laughs> no, I thought. It's <laughs> a so, direct line to a palm door. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I'm sorry for your pain, but. Daddy's bookshelf is empty. Um, no, so so yeah. When he told me that, I was like, "Well, this is for a guy who's not religious. This is some of the most Christ-like behavior that I could imagine." So, so that was big part of why I was interested in making the movie. This is the thought I had. I enjoyed watching the movie. It's really well done. It's an absolutely compelling story. I'm not sure it's a documentary I would want to make. I mean, obviously, I couldn't make it. I'm not a skilled documentarian. But just to live with that, I would imagine, would take a toll on you. But why did you want to... You've explained why you wanted to take it on. But did it did it weigh on you at times? Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, the whole year was... It, it was... I went through a divorce, and then my... You know, Robin Williams was my best pal. And so, you know, he died, and then... Oh, then I broke up with my girlfriend decorating the Christmas tree. But then, you know, I could get through the day by relaxing and editing a, a child abuse documentary for 12 hours a day. So, yeah, it was a lot of laughs last year. It's good to have the outlet. It was just, it was, you know, I, I'm, I'm joking when I said it, but I, you know, after Robin passed away, I kind of really did put myself into the movie full time. 
partially because I, I felt that's what he would have wanted, and then partially I just it was just my way of dealing with it, you know. And I and I felt that hopefully if we didn't screw up the movie, we would be doing some good, you know. So I just really put myself full on into it. But it's been a very hard year. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but, you know, the likelihood of me doing something very silly, you know, maybe it's time for me to do a talking duck movie or mm -hmm. something, you know. Yeah. It's, it's been a hard year. Police Academy 12? I mean, what I don't know what they're yeah, up to. Yeah. I lost count. You know what? I really don't know. You know, I um, <laughs> I got hit by TMZ. Hey, Bob, how are you? Bobcat Goldthwait out in New York City, uh, the comedian. Oh, I know he is. Yeah. You know that their whole strategy is they try to get you mad, and the TMZ guy goes. Um, so we go up to him. We say, "Is it is it time to have a Police Academy reboot?" Because he did the high pitched voice in Police Academy. So we ask him about it. He was in it. He goes, "Uh, no. <laughs> why? Why not? I think people want it. It was, it was such a great series." Well, the problem is, um, uh, a lot of the cast are dead. I said, if they're rebooting it, they should do what they did to 21 Jump Street. They should make it a comedy this time. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and then the other thing I said that didn't make the air, I said, the police are killing civilians right now. I don't know if it's really the time for a wacky police comedy. You know? I, I would say now more than ever. <laughs> well, the original premise of the first one was, was that they had dropped their standards and anyone could be in a, a police. So maybe it, maybe it was... <laughs> Maybe it was the truth. You know, now they're saying the solution to this over-policing is body cams. I say it's more Zed. I say it's exploring his <laughs> backstory. You dudes are setting a bad example. Can't hear you, bro. Can't you see I'm getting my beauty sleep? Oh, I I'm sorry. Move it! I understand that that's how a lot of people know me, and they're, they're, that's how they identify with me. Be, feel worse if I, if I wasn't being creative and if I wasn't making movies and if I was doing the typical thing when you're in show business and you're waiting for other folks to give you permission to make stuff. People who've been beaten up by the business when they hear me talking and I say, well, you know, just go out and make something. That they're all, well, you know, I wish, you, you know, you, they see me as somebody who got a chance or a break because I have been in the business or they perceive me as someone who has money, which is not true at all. But if I had a day job and I had to shoot the movies on iPhones, I would still be making movies. And finally, if there is a message of sort of universal resilience, I mean, is there something to be found in how Barry has gotten through his ordeal and lives his life? Or is it maybe it's too glib? Some people have that within them and some don't. No, I feel that that's the whole message of the movie is that it's, you know, that's why he doesn't like being called a hero because he, he feels that, that what he's done, anybody is capable. And he says, once we start labeling him a hero, then we make it impossible or unattainable or uh, unpleasant for other people to go through what he's done to come out the other side. So I do believe that it is obtainable for everyone. And, you know, some people are going to be stuck in it longer or, or, or for whatever. But, you know, the basic end of the day, the movie is is that there is hope for people. And it's not, you know what I, I am proud of the movie, is that our our hopeful ending isn't the tacked on hopeful ending. It's the actual events that lay, were laid out. Bobcat Goldthwait's latest film is Call Me Lucky. It's a documentary about 
Barry Crimmins, and it's out on a video on demand. So do demand it. It's out now. Thanks a lot, Bobcat. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. We'd like to announce the Just Live at September 29th. It's in the Bell House in Brooklyn and among our cavalcade of guests. We are using the word cavalcade a lot, but it's really apt. Adam Davidson's going to be there. Maria Konnikova is going to be there. She's going to play Is That Bullshit Live. We have special musical guests. And we have musical expert Chris Malamphy. In fact, he's right next to me. What's it like to be on that bill? Is it like Woodstock? Is it like Altamont? What are you, what are you thinking, Chris? I'm, I'm thinking it's uh, Monterey Pop, but maybe I'm the association rather than Jimi Hendrix. Uh-huh. I, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to overstate my, uh, my importance to the band we're getting together. Some members of the association did survive past the 60s, though. So that that's is a good true. Thing. That yeah. is true. So not only will Malamphy be there, but Chris Wirtz will be there. He wrote Brooklyn Spirits. The thing's in Brooklyn. He'll be mixing spirits there. Zoe Chase is going to be there. We have an unnamed musical guest who's a big musical guest. Let's say everyone gets a plus two. I'm just thinking there won't be that many tickets left, so you better get on board. Go to slate.com slash NYC gist. See you there. And now the spiel, cold, calculating murder. I deplore murder but I love murder rates. Murder, as a criminologist will tell you, it's a very clean statistic, little subjectivity. People get noticed when they wind up dead. The dead are always investigated. Resources are marshaled. So today there's a big story about how murder rates are spiking in different U.S. cities like Baltimore and Milwaukee, but not in other cities like New York, L.A., Phoenix, San Diego. So why? No one really knows. That's what they'll tell you. No one really knows. Crime rates, murder, extremely hard to understand when it's going on right around you in the moment. But increasingly, it's clear that murder and crime rates are poorly understood even when examined at a distance. To wit, the understanding of a 20-year-old piece of legislation, the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act, a.k.a. the Crime Bill. The crime bills being re-examined, fought over for a couple of reasons. One, I said it was 1994, so last year was the 20th anniversary. There were a number of reports about it then. And these reports were against the backdrop of the over-policing stories like Ferguson, stories that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. And lately, the crime bill has been discussed in the context of a possible Joe Biden presidential run as Biden was the lead Senate sponsor of that bill, the Daily Beast Headline is the bill that could break Joe Biden in 2016. And Chuck Todd of Meet the Press this weekend spoke of that bill with these words. Joe Biden is the author of the infamous crime bill from the mid 90s that increased incarceration rates among African-Americans. And I'm told that he's not ready to totally renounce that deal. That's going to be a deal breaker with the Black Lives Matter movement infamous crime bill, infamous, notorious, disreputable, wicked, abominable, the bill that could break Biden. Now, to be clear, saying that this 20-year-old piece of legislation is the thing that's going to keep Biden from the presidency is like saying that it was the overly snug singlet that kept me from beating Usain Bolt in a foot race. And speaking of runaway segues, I call false start on the entire premise. The crime bill, in hindsight, did lead to massive incarceration among black people. It also led to such a precipitous drop in crime that I would say that if climate change legislation, gun control, and tax policy failed like that crime bill failed, 
We'd be living in a globally cooling, trigger-locking, income-gap-shrinking relative paradise. Sure, we'd be complaining about knife attacks and fistfights and how impassable the Arctic is and how the Hamptons have just been overrun by blue-collar people, but things actually would be great. Now, I know they say that statistics don't tell the story. They say, make it personal and then people will care. But I don't know. The statistics are the things that just blow me away. In my city, New York, 2,200 New Yorkers were murdered in 1994. 2,200. Last year, under 400. That's not a significant drop. That's an incredible drop. So New York's not the whole country, and the crime bill is far from the biggest explanation of why crime fell. But just look at the numbers. In 1993, 24,000 Americans were murdered. Last year, it was 14,000. And by the way, the population of the United States has risen by about 60 million. So that's like adding the countries of Portugal and Spain or adding the countries of Argentina plus Dominican Republic. I'm saying it's adding a lot of people and yet 10,000 fewer were killed. You know, here's something interesting. When Joe Biden was running, actually running for president a few years ago, not dancing around in an MSNBC chat show stimulus package, call it cash for yackers. Then Joe Biden would brag about the crime bill and the fact check sites would ding him a little bit. They'd say, yeah, he was the primary driver of the Senate, but that bill really only delivered 60,000 new cops, not 100,000. And crime rates only fell moderately, not completely as a consequence of the bill. This time around... The charge is that the bill worked. Biden, how do you defend yourself on the charge that that bill worked? Look, I'm not being cruel. I'm not being naive. I know that it did lead to massive incarceration, and a lot of that is a societal shame. Those statistics do show that long prison sentences do bring down crime, but it's not the only thing that brings down crime, and there are overly long and stupid prison sentences, and mandatory minimums for drug sentencing has been a failure. And also, we have to have some mercy as a society. Acknowledged, all acknowledged. But in 1994, we couldn't have foreseen all the consequences of the crime bill. We couldn't have foreseen how well it worked, and we couldn't have foreseen the ways it didn't work. And Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and a few others are now among the chief voices for fixing the parts that didn't work. They're the ones saying, yes, let's bring down the massive incarceration rates. What's wrong with saying that? Would you rather a politician who admits that his or her proposal did some good, made some mistakes, but now wants to get it right? Isn't that better than the allergy that you see in some circles, the allergy to ever admitting wrong? And isn't at some point shaming the politician who admits partial failure a self-defeating strategy? And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer. But you know who the managing producer is? It's Joel Meyer. Or, as of this moment, was... How will we manage to produce without you, Joel? Joel Meyer is going to the Midwest from whence he came. So he came east, Gatsby-like. Also like his fellow Minnesotan, F. Scott Fitzgerald, came here to establish himself. Meyer believed in the green light, that orgastic future that recedes before us. It eluded us then, but no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, mark our territory further by urinating, defecating, scratching, biting, rubbing on trees. That was a good partnership Joel and I had. So you know what? I just It's going to be tough for me to go on. I'm going to have to take a breather, a little bit of a breather. I'm going to take the next week and a half off. Is it a sympathy strike? Is it a pre-scheduled vacation? You be the judge. 
In fact, I just suggest you think of it as a sorbet, a palate cleanser. People are always saying, I can't keep up with the gist. Well, now's your chance. You could binge listen to all the old episodes. You know, back in February, I had some pretty trenchant things to say about Bibi Netanyahu's interior design choices. Or that kid from Target named Alex. Really got into him. He really was cute. Did about six minutes on that in February, I think. So it's your chance to catch up. And late next week, we will have a special guest host for a couple of days of The Gist. Tell us who that is, Andrea. I can give you a few clues, Mike. Okay, okay, who's it gonna be? The person who sends the yo's. <laughs> yo, I haven't plugged yo in a while. You could subscribe to yo by going to yo and sign up for podcast. It's the person who reads our emails. Someone reads the emails? All of them, I have a folder. Or- you said I, there was a pronoun there. Andrea, will you want to tell us who will be hosting for the next couple of days? Finally, they're going to have a chance to hear what my voice sounds like when you let me out of the box, Mike. <laughs> Andrea Salenzi, Unchained, next Wednesday and Friday, right? Yes. All right, so uh, binge listen between them. And also, I want to plug the live show. It's September 29th. The Gist will be live in Brooklyn. Go to slate.com slash NYCGist. We're adding more elements all the time, and yet the show's staying 90 minutes. Don't know how we'll do it. The Gist. Burning through managing producers like Al-Qaeda burned through number threes. Thanks for listening. Food isn't just something you put in your mouth. On the Burnt Toast podcast, Amanda Hesser, Meryl Stubbs, and editor Kenzie Wilbur dig into the culture of food. You may pick up a recipe or two along the way, but this is a show about how food fits into our lives. Check out Burnt Toast from Food 52 wherever you find your podcasts.